Well, good morning. It's great to see you all this morning. You can join me in opening your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under a seat near you and find Joel by looking at the table of contents. If you do not own a Bible, uh, the one that you grab is yours to keep. So we are finishing our short sermon series in the book of Joel, and we're in the last chapter of this book of this prophet. And it's not that long of a chapter, but there is a lot to say. And so usually there's plenty left on the cutting room floor here, and there's plenty today. So Joel chapter 3. This chapter addresses a central concern of humanity, which is injustice. It's certainly a central concern in our culture. In this chapter, God addresses the problem of injustice. We hate injustice. One way to ruin a good movie for me is to end it with justice not being done. I recently rewatched Braveheart. It's one of my favorite movies, but it still disturbs me. Because William Wallace and others had so much injustice done to them, and then he still dies in the end, life taken away from him. There's so many movies that I enjoy for the first hour and 40 or so minutes, and then toward the end I realize this is not going to end how I was hoping. One of these recent Star Wars remakes, I just, the last 10 minutes, I was like, everybody died. What a terrible movie. So there's so many movies like this. There's no good, right, and just ending. And those movies reflect our life experiences in many ways, don't they? Life is often so disturbing, so often for us because of injustice. Wrongs are not set right, victims are ignored. Abusers escape consequences. The powerful silence accusers. Just this past week, you may have heard about the abusive power of a well-known apologist for years, and he's passed away recently, and only now do people feel able to speak up, but it's too late for our courts to bring this man to justice. Maybe you've experienced injustice. Someone's taken advantage of you. Kids, maybe something's, someone has stolen something from you, and it just feels so wrong. Uh, maybe in your workplace, someone stole business from you. Maybe you've suffered from abuse. And it's in light of this that the Bible's teaching on God's judgment is actually shown to be good news. The Bible's teaching on the coming judgment. I mean, this is one of the hardest things for us to believe today in our culture. One of the most offensive teachings of Christianity today. Hard to believe in our culture. But here's what we see from Joel chapter 3, which we'll read in just a moment, that God's judgment is actually one way that Christianity is good news for our culture. Our culture cares about justice, and God's judgment is how God will bring justice to this world. And we'll see that that is brought to this world. It's part of the good news of Christianity. Jesus came, and he died for our sins, and he rose again, and he's coming back to set the world to, right, the world to rights and to make all things new. And so this is God's good answer to the longings of our hearts for true justice. God's judgment is not something we need to be embarrassed about, but it actually can give us great hope. And so this is the hope we'll see in Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3 shows us that God will judge all people for the injustices they've done and that he'll then bring a restored world of peace and justice to his people forever. So let's read Joel chapter 3 together. 
This is God's Word. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations, the Lord says, and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the valley where Yahweh is judge, God is judge. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because, here's the reasons, they've scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon? And all the regions of Philistia, are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you've taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I'll stir them up from the place to which you've sold them, and I'll return your payment on your own head." I'll settle your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they'll sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves here. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Chittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they've shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would help us to understand it rightly and feel fittingly in response and be transformed by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's three main movements to what we just read in this chapter, and we'll just follow along uh, with those three movements, and each movement teaches us something about God's judgment. First, we'll see that God's judgment is just, and therefore, it's actually comforting. Second, God's judgment is certain, and therefore it is alarming. And third, God's judgment leads to restoration for his people, and therefore is hopeful. So first section, God's judgment is just, and therefore actually comforting. This is verses 1 through 8. In this first section, God is giving the reason for his coming judgment against the nations. Now, this is very common throughout the prophets, 
in the Old Testament. They often speak of a coming judgment for all people, all nations. Sometimes they speak about it very generally, you know, speaking of all nations and for their sins in general. Sometimes there's a narrow focus on a few particular nations and because of a few particular things that they've done that, are, that warrant God's judgment. And that's actually what we see here. We see here both a general and a narrow focus, but mainly an emphasis on a few particular nations for their particular sins. But this gives us a sense of the kinds of things that God will judge. So you can see the general focus right here in verse 2. He says, I will gather all the nations. In verse 9, proclaim among the nations. So this general view, perspective for all nations. But then we see a narrow focus here as he deals with particular nations for their particular injustices, which then show us the kinds of things that God will judge. So who's he focusing on in particular then? Well, he's focusing on several of the surrounding nations of Israel that oppressed them. Verses 2 and 3 shows the injustices they did. So look at this again with me. God says, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they, these other nations, have scattered God's people among the nations and have divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people and they've traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. He says the same thing in verse 6. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. So what do these people do? Well, they took these Israelites and sold them to faraway nations. This is a kind of ethnic cleansing through a slave trade. They sold them into slavery. And do you see the particular emphasis on the disregard for children here in verse 3? They're trading boys and girls for nighttime pleasures and drinks. They're taking human beings made in God's image, and they're treating them as cheap property. It's a disregard for human life and a disregard for children. And what's God's response to this? Verse 4, God speaks to these nations and he says, are you paying me back for something? Right, because these are the kinds of things God will judge, but this, in this particular instance, it was done against God's people. So he says, are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. So God says, I will return their payment on their own head. He's going to do to them what they did to Israel. He's going to make the punishment fit the crime. In verses 7 and 8, he says the same thing and adds specifics. He says, essentially, because you sold Israel into slavery, I'm going to sell you into slavery. It's a poetic way of saying that he will bring a just judgment. He will make the punishment fit the crime. It would be like saying to Nazi leaders last century, because you callously threw these precious people into camps, I'm going to throw you into camps. So what does this show us about God's justice? Well, it shows us what God cares about, doesn't it? It shows us that this kind of ethnic supremacy and slave trades are unjust and worthy of judgment. These nations sold the Israelites into slavery. We see this happen throughout history. The Bible shows us how Egypt had enslaved Israel, then others sold Israel into slavery throughout their history. The Assyrians enslaved, enslaved the Israelites, and then later the Babylonians enslaved people, and then the Greeks enslaved people. Slavery has been on essentially every inhabited continent in every generation. It's been the norm for humanity throughout history, and sometimes it devolves into particularly heinous forms 
of injustice, like what happened uh, in America's history. Men and women, boys and girls viewed as property and discarded and disregarded. And what about today? We may not participate in that same kind of slavery, but it doesn't mean that similar forms aren't still here. The modern-day slave trade uh, for us in this area is the human trafficking of women and children. It's estimated that something like 45 to 50,000 women and children are brought into the U.S. every year for this purpose, and then there's more happening within our borders, and it's usually for the purpose of indulging men for, or for online viewing. So we all need to hear this note as well, lest we think it's removed. Those who view online images are supporting that industry with their participation. You who view online images are supporting that industry through your participation. And just like these nations disregarded boys and girls, our culture disregards boys and girls in the womb. There's a disregard around our globe on the other side in China for the Uyghur people. We've been learning more and more about injustices and abuse done through the Me Too movement. We saw the disregard for human life with the killing of George Floyd last year. We saw subsequent injustices with the riots um, destroying people's property. And here's God's message to us in this text for these and all sorts of injustices. God sees this, and a day is coming when He will bring justice. Every wrong will be righted. Many who have abused or oppressed and then escaped, the consequences in this life will not escape from God. Many don't get caught. Some people die early before justice can be done here, but God will ensure that justice will be done. And so this message of God's judgment, this is actually in part good news. It's good news because it shows us that the God who made us cares about what happens here. He cares about justice. He's the source of all true justice, and God will bring it one day. In fact, uh, you know where the West's emphasis on justice and human rights came from? It came from the influence of the Bible in Western culture. Um, We've forgotten this largely in the West, but it came from the Bible because God cares about these things. Uh, universal human rights wasn't just around. It's the influence of Christianity in the Bible in Western civilization. So, this is what we see first, that God's judgment is just because this is who God is, and therefore it's surprisingly comforting in a world filled with injustice. But second, we see that God's judgment is certain, and therefore it is alarming We see this in the middle section, verses 9 through 16 here. God calls the nations to be alarmed at the coming judgment. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. So, he says, proclaim this to the world. Proclaim this to the nations. Then he issues a number of commands, all of them essentially summoning them to come to the judgment, but to come for battle. He calls them to a battle in a valley. Verse 9, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war be drawn near. Let them come up. And then he calls them to take their agricultural tools and to turn them into weapons for war. Verse 19, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Then he calls them to a location. It's a valley. 
calls it in verse 12, the valley of Jehoshaphat, and verse 4, the valley of decision. It's probably not a particular valley in view. We don't have historical records of a valley with either of those names. Both names mean something, though. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh, God, judges. So God judges. He's saying, come to the valley where I judge, in the valley of decision. Um, Sometimes that's been used to refer to like a time where people need to decide to follow Christ. But that's not what it means here in context. It's the valley of decision. The decision is God's decision. It's His verdict on the injustice is done. So He's saying, come to the valley where Yahweh judges. Come to the valley of verdict, the, the valley where I give my verdict over you. So it's a poetic metaphor for the final judgment. And notice He's calling the people to a battle, but it's not going to be a drawn-out war. God will issue His judgment swiftly. Notice verse 12, for there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. They're coming to fight, and God will just sit to judge them. Jesus spoke the same way. He said in Matthew 25 that nations will be gathered to Him, and He will sit in judgment and separate them, and it will be swift and decisive. So, here's how Joel's vision of the judgment helps us then one way. We often think of this coming judgment in merely individual terms, and it is that. It's true. Every person will stand before God. But Joel also shows us what the prophets often do is that this is actually the culmination of history, and it also involves nations. So, this reminds us that the judgment isn't just kind of a random, ahistorical occurrence disconnected from history and our life here throughout the generations. No, the judgment is actually a historic climactic space and time issuing of, the injust, of, of justice toward all the injustices that were done. So when you experience injustice, your hope is not just kind of a general abstract idea um, of a judgment, but it's actually like time will continue, injustices continue, and there will be a day in history, the culmination, when God in history, space and time history, deals with real people for their real offenses against real human beings made in His image. And history is moving toward that day. We're closer to that day now than we were when we began our time in Joel minutes ago. So when you experience injustice as your hope is that a day will come where God will right every wrong. Now, it's also the case that you may recoil at this idea of judgment. But I want you to consider that we really do all deeply and in some sense want this kind of justice to be done. Because even the best stories leave us unsettled until justice comes in the end. When people escape and get away with the things they've done, we're unsettled. We want the cries of victims to be answered. We want wrongs to be righted. But the problem, of course, is not just that justice is coming but that we know it should all come to us. Because when we take an honest look at our own lives and our own hearts, we recognize that we're all a mix of victim and abuser. Uh, We've had wrongs done to us, and we've also wronged others and manipulated others and exploited others for our own ends. We've been sinned against, and we sinned against others. That's That's our story. And so this judgment, the Bible's clear on, should come to everyone. There is no one righteous, no, not one. But notice the last line of this section, verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and earth quake 
but the Lord is a refuge to His people. So the Lord roars in judgment, but He's a refuge for some. For who? Not those who are somehow perfect, which is no one. It's a refuge for His people. Who are His people? It's those who trust Him, those who take refuge in His grace. Ultimately, those who are trusting in Jesus and taking refuge in Him. Psalm 2 speaks about Jesus coming, the coming Messiah King, and says, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. And He's ultimately a refuge because of the cross. On the cross, Jesus came in order to bear the judgment we deserve so that all of humanity doesn't have to be under it. He, he can become a refuge for those who trust in Him. So when God says to those who are unjust here, I'll return your payment on your own head, the grace that was coming is that the Lord Jesus would come to receive that payment on His own head so that we can receive blessing on ours. So the judgment is certain, and therefore it's alarming, but the good news of the gospel is that even though we are far worse than uh, we may even know far more deserving of God's judgment than we even know. We are also more loved and accepted as we take refuge in Christ, more accepted than we could ever hope. So think about this image. God is like a lion roaring, but those who take refuge in Him are safe. A lion's roar is incredible. I love looking at animal videos with uh, my sons, and lions are frightening, intimidating. Their roar can be heard for miles, and God's roar here is shaking the earth. It's a terrifying scene, um, but it's a refuge for some. When you see a lion roaring, uh, maybe protecting, it's young, right? There are some to whom that roar is a comfort, and for us here, it's a comfort for those who trust in Jesus. So there's really a twofold message here about God. God is a God of justice and a God of justification, as someone once put it. So think about it. God's a God of justice. He cares about all the injustices that are done. He is a God of justice. He's also the God of justification because He's the God who is gracious to justify or declare righteous and not guilty those who are sinners and are guilty because we take refuge in Jesus. And so God is both of these, not just one. If you only think of God as a God of justice, then you will tend to become self-righteous, looking at all the things that you think are unjust and that God should deal with, and uh, you'll self-righteously expect that you yourself would not fall under God's judgment, but the judgment is for a particular kind of people or a certain kind of people. I mean, our culture right now wants to split up everyone into either an oppressed or oppressor group. One's guilty, one's not guilty. We have good and bad, right and wrong. And so we can start to self-justify ourselves. If we only think of God as a God of justice, we pick and choose our injustices, and then we will be surprised one day to find ourselves under God's judgment. But if we only think of God as a God of justification, right, the God who declares righteous the wicked who trust in Him, the mercy that He shows us through Jesus. If we only think of Him at, in those terms, then we will be thankful for grace, but we will be left unconcerned with all the injustices that God does care about. And we will not hold people accountable. We will just say, God has grace, and then carry on. But God is a God of both. So this leads us to the good news of the last part of the chapter. God's judgment leads to restoration, and therefore, 
it's hopeful. This is the last section in verses 17 to 21. This is my favorite part of Joel. Describes this eternal future for all of those who do take refuge in in God, those who are in Christ. This is a picture of how God will renew the creation again. When we think about our eternal future, we often think just about heaven, right? It's true that our bodies go in the ground and our spirits go to be with Jesus in heaven, but the ultimate hope of the Bible is not just heaven, but beyond heaven, a new creation where we're reunited with our bodies in a resurrection and the whole world is, in a sense, resurrected and renewed and restored in a new creation. And so the new creation we see here is marked by three gifts. One, abundance. Look at the description in verse 8. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Now, that may not sound all that appealing at first, but think about it from their perspective. Remember, even just as God's judgments are sometimes spoken in general terms, but then also particular with a focus, so too His promises here. He's giving particular promises to them in light of their particular situation. Do you remember, if you've been here the past few weeks, what happened to them in chapter 1? This locust plague came and completely ruined everything, right? There's no more wine because the vineyards are eaten up. There's no um, grain. There seemed to be a drought. The stream beds are dried up. There's just wailing and crying. Their economy has crashed. And one of the phrases to summarize what happened there is joy and gladness are dried up, right? Their, their joy is gone. Wine itself was a symbol of joy, and it's completely gone. And now God is saying here, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Full restoration is coming. Everything that's taken away is given back. So joy and gladness had dried up, but now it's given back to them. And milk will flow, this symbol of abundance, the the land of Canaan, this Edenic-like beautiful place where it flows with milk and honey. Milk will flow. Dried stream beds will now flow with water in abundance. And it says, a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. What a picture. The temple and a fountain bubbling up from its midst, flowing out to water the land. You know, the, the temple was always meant to be this symbolic picture of Eden at the beginning. And if you read those first chapters of the Bible in Eden, it describes Eden as this mountaintop sanctuary where there must be a fountain because rivers are flowing from it to water the land. So the temple here is described in this Eden-like way as water will flow again and bring the flourishing to the land around it. So the new creation will be, be a place of abund- abundance A second mark of the new creation here is it's a place of justice. Verse 19 says the violent and oppressive nations won't be there anymore. It's the place of great blessing for our eternal future, not just heaven, but the new creation as a place of justice. He says in verse 21, I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, which I think means he's not yet avenged. We're waiting, but the day's coming. In other words, so much injustice goes unaccounted for in this life, but God will bring justice in the end. He will avenge blood. The new creation will also be marked finally with not just abundance and justice, but with God. It's the greatest gift in creation. The last phrase of the book of Joel, do you see it there? For the Lord dwells in Zion. When you think of heaven and then the new creation to come after that, This is the central gift. 
Um, when we come to Christ, we receive His forgiveness for all that we've done wrong. We receive the hope of justice being done. We receive all these, this hope of the abundance of a flourishing world again, like it was always meant to be in Eden, but better. But the central and greatest gift, the gift without which it wouldn't even be a wonderful place, is the gift of God Himself dwelling with us again. The heaven and the new creation to come is not mainly about a location we go to, but a person we go to, a person we belong to, God Himself. And this is the, the future new creation we look forward to, and it's already started. Um, you know, when Jesus came, I mean, just think about this promise of abundant wine dripping from the mountains. The end of Amos speaks the same way. Sometimes the prophets speak of this abundance of a new creation is flow, wine's flowing because it's a symbol of joy. And do you remember in the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with that, uh, John brings together seems like seven signs, or signs being symbols, messages essentially, think, miracles that Jesus did, but they weren't just to show His power. They actually communicated something about the kingdom that He was bringing. In His very first one, do you remember what He, what he did? He went to a wedding. His wine ran out. Crisis situation, joys dried up. And then He brought the best wine. And He brought it in abundance. He's saying the new creation's here, the joy's here, the wine's here, the party's getting started again. And then he even spoke about how, you know, he himself dwelling with us as really what the temple was always meant to be, God's presence. And Jesus dwelt among us. And then as people come to him, he says, we become the temple because his spirit is with us. We're, we're the, the presence of God is with us. And he says, when you come to Christ, from you will flow rivers of living water, right? This, this, from the presence of God with you, this, this living water. So the abundance of new creation has already come here. So what does Joel give us? Well, here's just four final reflections for us. Uh, first, this gives us hope in a God who does right and brings justice. Hope in a God of justice. The God of the Bible is not indifferent to abuses of power. He's not indifferent to genocides. He's not indifferent to what happens, as we talked about a few minutes ago, to women and children, even today in our borders. He's a God who will bring justice in the end. The pain that you may have experienced will one day be healed, if not in this life, then the new creation to come. He's not indifferent to abortion. He is not indifferent to racism. This also gives us hope in a God who offers himself as a refuge for even the most unjust. God is not just a God of justice. He's the God of justification. He's a God who justifies, declares righteous, not guilty. Those who are guilty, even the worst of us, who take refuge in Jesus. And this doesn't dismiss God's justice, it upholds it, because the cross itself shows us just how seriously God takes the sins of those whom He's forgiven, because all of those sins were poured out on Jesus. It wasn't just dismissed. It took the Son of God coming in the flesh to become a man, to then bear our sins in His body on the tree, and be buried, and then rise again. And so, Every sin, every injustice, all the billions of them, every one of them will be paid for either at the last judgment in the end 
for, for those who do not trust in Christ and take refuge in Him, or on the cross already 2,000 years ago over Jesus. And therefore, all who take refuge in Him already passed through that judgment, and we take refuge in God. Third, this gives us a vision for the church. If this is the God we claim to know, the God who cares about the things we've seen here, then this should change how we live. This should make our lives as Christians and as church communities different from the world. It means that uh, we will not be indifferent to injustice. The church and its leaders have often failed. We've seen hypocrisy and apathy toward cries of victims, but the answer to this is not less Christianity but more Christianity right? It's leaning into the God of the Bible and taking Him seriously. We want more of the real thing. And we want to define justice according to the Bible rather than whatever, however it's being defined in any given cultural moment. Um, we go to the Bible for our definition of justice. We, we learn from God what things are right and wrong and that we should care about. And by the way, just even a concrete step that some of you can take, we have these growth groups um, for people to meet and grow as disciples. And one of the men's growth groups right now is on domestic abuse and how we can help one another and equip the church into caring for this well. Um, men, if you're interested in that, I encourage you to reach out. You can go to our website and just click our Disciple Growth Group button on the homepage, and you can sign up for that growth group. And then finally, this gives us a mission. We have a message. We have an alarming message of judgment, but we also have a comforting message about who God really is and that He cares about our pain and suffering and the cries of the oppressed, and we have a God who welcomes sinners, all of us who have um, done wrong to our neighbor. He welcomes by grace. And so we have this message to share with our neighbors, to take to the ends of the earth, to go to cultures and people groups that have yet never even been reached to hear the message of God's grace for sinners and His transforming power to make new communities reflect His righteousness and justice. So we have a great privilege then as God's people, empowered by the Spirit, to take this message outward. We don't need to be embarrassed by this. This is the real God and His good news. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for uh, this hard and heavy yet comforting Word. We thank You for being clear about who you really are. We thank you for this message of Joel. We thank you that you care about the cries of people around the globe, and we are longing for you to make all things new and set all things right, and that is terrifying for us as well. We have a great longing in our heart for people to take refuge in Jesus. We pray that you would use us to spread renewal and revival that more and more might find refuge in Christ and then begin to reflect your goodness and your justice in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.